Welcome. I'm Jessica Tejan, and this is the Evolving to Exceptional podcast, where we talk about reaching peak performance in our workplaces, homes, and communities so that we can live our best life possible, an exceptional life. Welcome back to the Evolving to Exceptional podcast. This week, you have myself, Jessica, and Meldina is back with us. So back in the land of the healthy, both of us are. So hopefully, um, we will be able to stay that way for the next few weeks as we continue to record these episodes. So today, we are going to be continuing with our Evolving Workplaces series and talking about moving from isolation to inclusion and connection. So today's episode is really titled Isolating Individuals. And I want to start with just a little bit of history around or a little bit of a discussion around the history of isolation. Our workplaces have had a long and dark history with separation, isolation, and disconnection. Those in charge of the workplace had a fear of workers rebelling or refusing to do the work required, so they kept a tight control on everything individuals did. One very effective method of control is to keep people separated and unable to connect, form bonds, and create relationships. If you've watched or read The Handmaid's Tale, you've seen the extreme example of trying to prevent people from developing relationships or creating connections. But this example is not just fictional. In fact, the slaves in the South regularly experienced this type of treatment, as did those years later in factories. Throughout history, there are examples of trying to prevent people from connecting and bonding. This legacy is carried forward in today's workplace, although it may be less obvious in its application. Rather than outwardly preventing connection, bonding, and relationships, workplaces have allowed this, but with very key limits. So the problem we really want to talk about today or get into a bit is that, you know, what is the issue with workplaces becoming isolating to those who are not the same as everyone else? How are the modern day workplaces isolating for individuals? And and I don't think that this problem is, is as obvious as those in the past where they really intentionally limited, prevented the development of relationships, friendships, and connections. But in today's workplace, I think there are some um, more unintentional uh, behaviors that are having the same effect. So whether they're following, you know, whether these behaviors are intentional or unintentional, you know, can be arguable depending on the workplace, but their effect is the same. So when workplaces define their cultures or the type of employee who works there, they begin to establish practices that will have an isolating impact. These businesses create lists of cultural fits. These are the characteristics that are applied to individuals that are going to fit within that culture. Then they use that to hire people. Then once they're hired, individuals are onboarded into these cultural behaviors and norms that teach them how to be like everyone else operate like others, and what the limits are in the workplace. Individuals are quickly encouraged to assimilate to the expected norms in the workplace. Now, some will argue that this is a good thing. It creates clarity, community, and a clear culture. However, often what is determined to be cultural fits is underneath nothing more than an attempt to keep everyone the same or even cover for outright discriminatory behavior. 
where some roles are considered more appropriate for a particular gender, such as sales guys and women in administrative roles, or where those with different backgrounds, such as from another country, were not considered culturally aligned, or where those who have piercings and tattoos are considered too liberal for this type of work, or where someone with those beliefs is contrary to our culture. All of these are examples of where we see our workplace cultures becoming isolating for specific individuals or in certain situations. Jessica, as you're talking, the wheels in my head are kind of already starting to turn um, just as you're talking about this topic, because it's interesting to me that if some of these practices that we're all so accustomed to were applied in any other context, so think about admissions into schools or even being allowed to sit in a movie theater, a restaurant, or any other type of business establishment, if each of those had their own set of quote unquote requirements in order for you to be able to go in, to sit, stick around, to use their services or products, how discriminatory that just makes us feel. I mean, I think people would be absolutely outraged and it's just interesting, but because we slap on the word cultural in front of it, of what workplaces are doing, like assessing for cultural fit, it somehow makes it less discriminatory and more about what's doing what's right for the business. So I think it's just that subtle way that we've been excluding people without even realizing it. Well, and I think in all cases, it can be considered discriminatory. It's really a question of whether it's illegally discriminatory, right? Because we can, there are many things we can discriminate based upon that do not rise to the level of being illegal discrimination. Um, if I, you know, choose not to uh, go on a date with someone because of their hair color, or I choose not to become friends with someone because they are, um, they like the Cubs and not the Cardinals. Um, you know, those are, are things that I can choose and, and there's no legal ramifications for those choices. But in a workplace setting, whether it's legal or not, doesn't really matter if it's having a negative impact on the culture and on the ability of individuals to both join the culture and assimilate to or become part of that culture. Absolutely. So how are these cultures of isolation created in the workplace? So I, I actually think you've got to almost go through the entire employee experience, the entire employee journey, um, because I think they apply all the way throughout. So if we start with, let's say, hiring, just kind of that entry point into an organization, when hiring decisions are made based upon gut instinct, which is something hiring managers love to refer to when they say things like, I have a good feeling about this person, I can see this person in X role, I just know he's got it. Um, these are examples of where we're really making decisions based on our own biases or our own paradigms. And these insights are actually really tied to the individual self-identity. So the hiring manager is attempting to hire based upon their own, either, either their identity or the identity they believe is appropriate to the role or to the position, the image of what is needed. What a person who performs that role is supposed to look like, think, and be as they perform that role. And then these hiring decisions are based upon who is fitting the closest to that individual's self-identity, to that identity that they've crafted, and that and and who then feels like a cultural fit to that person. 
Um, I know you and I can both think of lots of examples of where we've seen this play out in hiring decisions. Absolutely. I've heard in, I think, a lot of the hiring decision processes that I've been a part of where a candidate is often compared to a current employee there just to get people to imagine what that impact could potentially have. So essentially, you're imagining just another copy of that person in the workplace. So they'll say things like, do we really want another John Smith working for us? Or she's going to be another Jane Doe. And so from that first interaction with this candidate, we've already sort of grouped them together with other employees and set certain expectations about the way that they're going to think, the way they're going to feel, their beliefs, their behavior, et cetera. And so when they go against those expectations, we begin to exclude them because we then think, well, they don't fit the, the norm. They don't fit the expectations we set for them. So clearly they don't belong here. It's natural for our brains to do that. It's creating, it's it's meaning making, right? Like it's helping our brains are trying to understand and make sense of the people that we're interacting with. But it does discount the unique abilities or the uniqueness of each individual person. And I think it also prevents you from really exploring the different ways in which a person might be successful in a particular role. So I've seen it a lot of times where when we were hiring salespeople and I say salespeople now at the time we always said sales guys and I could pretty much guarantee I knew who they would pick because they would always pick the person who had the most similar education background and looks as they did. They would even look at resumes to see, you know, who played particular sports or what involvement they had in particular groups within college, which actually had the effect, um, intentional or, or not, which I, I, I don't think it was intentional, that they actually never chose women because they were always thinking of, like you said, other people in the role and all the other people in the role up until this point had always been men, which made it really hard to imagine what a female would look like in that in that role. Well, how would a female present? How would they be successful? And and what's interesting is we did that during hiring, but then when we would look at people performing different salespeople would perform in completely different ways. And they might be successful applying completely different skill sets. We know that from Gallup Finder, from all of their research around sales professionals in particular, that people can be successful applying different strengths in order to achieve successful sales results, that it doesn't have to be one particular combination of strengths that will make someone successful. And so when we do this in hiring, when we look for someone who looks the same as our strongest performer or looks the same as others in the role, we may be discounting other individuals that actually could perform just as well, maybe even better using a different set of skills or a different type of background and motivation. Even just in general, when you're looking for for someone to hire and you're assessing them against some sort of competencies or characteristics or values and things like that, so much of that is very subjective. So it's interesting that people will still choose the people that they most similar that are most similar to them or that they most identify with based on those subjective feelings and their subjective understanding of the competencies or the values or how they come out in people in the organization. Very true. Different people can look at those competencies differently. 
So I think then that slides us more into where the isolation really starts. So as you start to onboard people, say somebody makes it past the hiring process. So even if they are unique and often, you know, even in, even in the hiring process, you can't begin to actually unpack all the layers of what makes a person unique or, or makes them who they are. And so we start to, to learn more about them or they keep a part of their true identity secret. They keep a piece of themselves. They hold it back. So now they're getting onboarded. And this is where they're learning all the ways that the business operates and interacts. They start to learn what's safe and what's not safe for them in terms of expressing opinions, perspectives, their failures, challenges, making mistakes. They start to observe and understand what those unofficial cultural practices are. And they also learn which groups are favored. So which teams or or departments get more money, get more attention, which groups are considered less important or maybe not as valued as other groups. And they start to assimilate to the culture. Whether those assimilations are good or bad, they begin to learn what is needed to succeed in the organization for better or worse. And that begins to have them either shed, adjust, or change different parts of their true self in order to assimilate and do what they need to be successful within the business, within the the organization. Uh, So I like to call this kind of the scoping out phase after you get hired. So, and I think we've all done it when we start working for a new organization and you're just kind of sort of sitting back and just observing what are others doing, you know, for at least the first couple of weeks, even things like what are they wearing to work? You know, are people coming in business casual versus more formal? Who does the leadership of the company seem to spend the most time with? And what are those individuals like? What are their personalities? What are those qualities? And even things like how lenient is the company when it comes to certain policies, so on and so forth. So you try to, you're spending so much of that time looking to see what is that norm, trying to piece together in your mind, what is that cultural fit look like? What's the norm here? And then you mirror those, you try to mirror those behaviors so that again, you fit in and you don't stand out and get labeled as a cultural misfit because who wants to be the new person in an organization and immediately get shunned from the work events, the, the cooler talks, all that good stuff, because you're, you don't fit the norm there. You know, there probably is an element of conscious, um, you know, like you talked about there, you know, consciously observing or, or learning what that culture is. But I also think there's a a certain degree that's just, um, that's totally unconscious that it simply existing in that environment Uh, You don't necessarily even think about whether a behavior, you've changed your behavior or you're doing something different or you believe something different or maybe you aren't the same as you were before. You're not honoring some part of yourself or sharing something about yourself. You don't even notice it, right? Because you're just learning intuitively what's needed in order to make progress. So just by watching those that do make progress, watching, you know, and not, again, not even consciously being necessarily aware where you're thinking like, oh, wow, um, the services part of the organization is definitely more valued than any other part of the organization. You know, maybe not necessarily thinking that consciously, but, but knowing, oh, wow, they're important. They matter. 
that that's a lucrative, you know, career path or that, or if I'm not in that area, I'm not going to have the same opportunities. And so you start to just on, you know, create this sense of awareness of where you're included, where you're not. Um, and, and of all those cultural dynamics that are at play. Absolutely. I think that's where our gut brains kind of play a role too. And, and what you kind of described there is almost like we're just trying to survive those first, you know, as we're getting onboarded and making those observations, sometimes even subconsciously. Our gut intelligence is all about our self-identity as well. And so, you know, between self-preservation and self-identity, there's a lot of what feels right, what should I do, what shouldn't I do. And I think in the beginning, it's why uh, you hear a lot where when you first hire people new into the organization, they have a lot of innovative ideas, new things they can think of, um, you know, about doing. But then over time, they begin to develop that learned helplessness of things not working or things not progressing. And they assimilate. And so they begin to adapt to that environment in which they're living, which kind of leads us to that development piece, which is kind of that next phase of the employee life life cycle. And this is where it really continues on beyond just the hiring and onboarding. So, you know, when you start to look at where there's an opportunity to make a decision to provide development um, or growth opportunities to another person, research actually shows that we are most likely to pick someone from our inner circle. So we've done um, over the years this this exercise. It's fairly common when you think about or or in different inclusion um, trainings where you do you draw a circle and you put you know, the names of who you trust with everything in your life, you know, and you kind of go out from there in your circle of, okay, and then who do you trust with some information, but maybe not everything and who's just an acquaintance. And inevitably, the people that are in that innermost circle are almost always made up of individuals who are the most like us. So the most similar in terms of looks, backgrounds, and beliefs. Which means that when there's an opportunity to provide development or growth to someone, we're going to pick from that circle. And most of the time, that circle is going to look the most like us. Unless we've done something intentional to diversify it, it's most likely going to mean the same people get the best opportunities. And that those, it means that then growth and development is really limited to those who fit the mold. It's going to be limited to those who find their way into those inner circles of the decision makers. And if an individual is too different, either in how they express themselves, how they think, what they believe, then they're going to be significantly less likely to be considered for development opportunities and even maybe negatively impacted. So not just, you know, not just not positively impacted or or not just missing out on that positive opportunity, but they may actually be negatively impacted as well. And I think we've seen this also with just even once you get to that point and you get into that, what we call our high potential groups, for example, and you get paired up with your mentor, the sole kind of purpose of that relationship is to model the behavior that you want your mentee to exhibit once you've stepped out of a role or once you're trying to get them into that that single role. So it's interesting that even once you've kind of, even if you've gotten past that initial development phase where you you get into the group now you're in it's like 
you're still being you you've got this mentor that is now telling you okay well now this is how we behave this is how we do things around here this is the this is the beliefs that you've got to have these are the values that you've got to have so even once you've gotten to that some sort of level of where you're like all right now I'm in you're either you're further being suppressed your self identity is being suppressed you're you're kind of still having to be molded into exactly what the organization wants from you yeah, and those those situations are not just the formal training or those formal mentorships either. They're the informal as much as anything else. So employees very quickly, I've seen this many times, they very quickly identify who the informal influencers are mm-hmm. and who's got informal power, or in, informal influence in the organization. And those are the individuals you need to have relationships with, even if they're not in positions, in leadership positions. But it extends to, you know, dinners, happy hours, lunches. You know, some individuals get invited to those and others do not. Some get opportunity for more development while others do not. And I think a lot of times leaders um, don't even realize what they're doing. They don't realize that they keep going to lunch with the same individuals, which means others don't get that same opportunity. Others don't get that same uh, opportunity for discussion, for conversation, for growth that those individuals who are going with them do. Um, And I've seen it even in in cultures, especially male-dominated cultures, where there's some situations where male leaders don't feel comfortable going to lunch or dinner or drinks with female employees, but they do with male employees. And so they end up taking male employees on golfing or on trips, but the women are are left out or are left behind from these same opportunities, which means they don't get the same exposure, relationships, or support as those male employees do. And that's a simple example between, you know, just a gender difference there. But I think when you then look at um, other differences, it can get even more more complex. Um, if there's faith-based um, opportunities, so then those of a different faith get left out. If there are opportunities that um, maybe an individual feels uncomfortable with someone who has a different sexual orientation or a different gender identification, those are all different types of situations that uh, you that in- employees can feel it's necessary to, uh, uh, you know, assimilate in order to get those, those growth opportunities in order to get those next steps, which kind of leads us to promotion, which is, you know, what, how are individuals selected for promotion into a new role or a leadership position? And if they've had limited exposure to those who make the decisions, if they're different from those who make the decisions, then they're really significantly less likely to be chosen. And I and I have to say, you know, I've seen uh, situations like this in the past, and we, you know, we always did our best to try to to navigate these. But this probably more than anything else has that impact of I think driving a lack of inclusiveness or are are creating that that disparity or that divide when you feel like you can't get into a role because of of something that is unique or different about you as an individual because you are a new mom who's got small babies and so you're discounted as having the time or the energy to take on that new challenging role or because you you don't you know value competition in the same way as a lot of the other salespeople do and so you're discounted even though you are fantastic at building relationships with customers and could really be successful in that way 
so it's interesting, I think, when it comes to promotion, you know, that's where, you know, where we talk about that inner circle becomes an even bigger, has even bigger implications. And as human beings, I think we try to predict so much of our future and of what things are going to happen and the outcomes that it's almost like a defense mechanism for us to just go back to what makes us feel comfortable. And so we know this person who looked like this, who behaved like this, who felt like this, who valued these sort of things, well, they performed well. So why don't we just keep doing the same thing that we've been doing? It makes us feel comfortable. That lack of knowing of hey, I'm going to hire this new person or I'm going to develop this new person and I'm not really sure what the outcome is going to be is what makes people feel uncomfortable. And so I think they retreat back to, well, let's just stick to what we know works well and, and not even take that risk. And it's unfortunate because I think so many people do get passed up for promotions all the time that could be very that could bring a new perspective or a new way of looking at things but they get passed up because of the reasons that you just listed because they are different with all of these with all four of these different areas you know and just it throughout the culture in general as people assimilate and as people it, again it gets back to that informal awareness of what is happening and and whether it's conscious or unconscious we just kind of know mm-hmm. and that those individuals who are left out who have something different about them or uh struggle to feel as though they're really included that continues to be a distracting and and negative impact on their performance on what they're able to deliver and and if not on their performance results on their own personal performance on how they feel and how they live their life it creates more discord and frustration and certainly you know a, a limitation on their freedom to be able to express themselves as who they really are and to really feel confident that they can be that within that that workplace or within that culture. You know, I think that's all part of the the challenge. What happens as a result of these practices in the workplace? What have we seen? So I think for those that don't match that cultural identity, either outwardly or in, inwardly because they're hiding it, it becomes really isolating. And that workplace isolation is really about whether they feel like they don't fit in or don't feel they're welcome or they feel left out. You know, those it's it's a subjective to the person. It doesn't necessarily mean that the the managers or the leaders are intentionally doing it. But if the culture is such that they feel like they don't fit in or they're not welcome, then that leads to lack of colleague bonding or lack of relationship creating. And so they may not be able to work together as smoothly. It's going to hinder trust. It's going to impact the ability to get work done effectively and efficiently. And it's going to have an impact on creating an engaging workplace. Connection is absolutely fundamental to creating engagement. Without those connections, the workplaces become less engaging. People just simply care less about the work that they're doing and and they're more clock in, clock out of a mentality. And then that to me starts to sound like that individual could really easily get into the cycle of feeling isolated where they they feel that initial 
isolation, they're iced out, and then they withdraw themselves. And like turtles, they kind of crawl back into their own shells, which then makes them even more isolated because now they're withholding stuff. They're not really connecting with other individuals. They're not spending any time with them, building those relationships. So then they continue to withdraw even more because now they're still feeling, you know, they're still getting more excluded. And that cycle just continues. And then the results that we're talking about just keep getting amplified on a greater scale. Yes. And and as soon as somebody starts to disengage, as soon as, as soon as somebody feels like there's nobody that cares about them, that's a huge question in Gallup's engagement survey. If people feel like no one cares about them as a person, if they are losing those workplace connections, that is a surefire way to guarantee you're not getting the best performance out of them. Because connection is what drives excitement. It drives energy. It drives commitment. It drives trust. And it creates an environment where people want to support and help each other be at their best, create the best outcomes. And so without that, it can be really difficult to create uh, an engaging environment. I heard so many people during the pandemic when people were starting to go back into the office, so many of my friends, I know, for example, were talking about like, yeah, I loved working from home. It was awesome. I love the flexibility. I loved being able to, you know, throw in a load of laundry and then hop on a meeting and be able to take care of some stuff like that. But I miss those connections. I miss seeing the people that I work with. I miss seeing them in person and getting to talk to them. And so they started to, over time, see their performance decline, not because they didn't feel connected to the work anymore. Or they didn't enjoy the work as much, but they were missing those connections with with their teams with the other people in the office and so they needed to go back into the office I saw their performance decline severely because of that because of that just that simple fact that they needed that connection yeah and I think that kind of leads into some of the key problems with isolation and and lack of connection and although connection is really tied into the heart brain is really tied into that's where we have our relational effect and and create those connections i actually think that that the lack of connection has a a really big impact in in a lot of gut ways so the first is without that connection people kind of tend to feel unsafe And so that lack of safety, that lack of confidence in being in a psychologically safe environment actually deteriorates mental health, increases loneliness, which leads to depression, anxiety, and even in some cases, suicide. It actually weakens physical health. So people are more likely to turn to drugs or alcohol, and there are physical impacts. 29% increase in risk of heart disease, stress of disconnection, which contributes to ADHD, addiction, anxiety, depression, heart disease, and suppressed immune systems. So the fact that there's a lack of psychological safety, which is tied to, you know, which ties in with our our safety to be connected, to be our true selves and to feel safe in the environment is going to have long lasting mental and physical health effects on the individuals that are in that environment. This is, you know, somewhat of an extreme example, but we've seen time and time again with the perpetrators who commit extreme acts of violence, we often hear them labeled as the lone wolf. And so it's those feelings of exclusion, of not belonging, and and feelings of loneliness that have a really negative impact on their mental health. And so they choose to retaliate 
in unfortunately very tragic ways. But I think it ties right back to this. They they lack that connection and so they feel unsafe. And so the only way that they feel like they can get that out or, or to retaliate is in some of these very unfortunate, tragic ways. And I think that can relate back to the next one, which is really that they can't be themselves. And so if people feel uncomfortable, feel judged, feel uh, different in some way when they try to show themselves or their true self, um, then that has an impact on their interpersonal relationships. So they'll have a tendency to withdraw. They may avoid events, stop communicating, and that's impacting those healthy relationships between peers. And I mean, I know when I, um, you know, when I was really struggling in this area myself with being my my true self in the workplace as I was going through that process, uh, that was an area where I really struggled because when I started to show up differently, I could feel the rejection of that person. And that made it more likely for me to avoid events or to to stop having some of the same communication that I would have had previously because it was uncomfortable. I felt like I couldn't be who I was. Another impact of this is the imposter syndrome. So when you feel like you can't be yourself, it perpetuates the imposter syndrome, which is questioning your value and the purpose of your work. Um, And this is when, I mean, I think a lot of people have been through this where you're like, why am I even trying? Why do I work so hard? What's the point in all this? This is, you know, and you just get into this negative cycle. And then that leads to increases in turnover. You know, there's no attachment and they're, you know, they can't, at some point, hiding ourselves in the workplace is going to leave us to want to leave that workplace because it's it's hard and it's extra effort and energy that really isn't worth it in the long run. And then the last kind of, I think, problem with isolation and lack of connection is that it prevents taking action. So again, kind of that gut brain around taking action, it reduces employee engagement. So it creates a lack of belonging, reduces commitment to organization. And then, you know, you kind of get detached from the organization and its success, which then leads to declines in job performance. You're less motivated to do the work. You lack the connection and attachment, which translates to a focus on your work. And then it can affect your your upskilling efforts. So those, you know, there's there's many studies that show that those with social isolation experienced an above average decline in memory function. So actually becoming socially isolated impacts people's skills and capabilities. And I think that's why Gallup has that question around having a best friend at work on their engagement survey because time and time again, they've been able to link that particular question specifically to increase individual and team performance and ultimately to positive outcomes. You mentioned another question around you feel like someone cares about you. That's also another question that Gallup asked. And and it's because those are the drivers of engagement. They are specifically linked to increased business results. They're increased in engagement and they're so important and I think speak volumes to the connection piece and and its importance in the workplace. And I think all of this really leads to the current reports coming out around loneliness. And there is report after report after report that has demonstrated that there is truly an epidemic of loneliness occurring in the workplace. And it's not just from people that are working remotely. And loneliness is not the absence of people, but the absence of connection. And the truth is that it probably loneliness is impacting your team. 72% of global workers are experiencing loneliness right now. 
72%. So if we know loneliness hinders work performance, we know it's likely impacting our teams. We know it's the result of not having connection, of being isolated, which leads us to that social isolation and loneliness. Then what are we going to do about it? And, and why is it that people really need that human connection? Well, I want to define for a minute that human connection is really when two or more people choose to engage in vulnerable interactions where each person is heard, seen, known, and valued. That is what really creates human connection. So as you think about in your workplace, whether you have true, meaningful human connection, ask yourself, does each person feel heard? Do they have an opportunity to feel heard? Are they seen and known as who they really are? Are they able to share real parts of themselves? Are they able to share or is there a cultural norm that prevents them from doing so? And then are they valued for that uniqueness? Are they valued for what they bring and they contribute that is different from everyone else? And we believe it, at Evolving to Exceptional that we actually need to shift from isolating people to creating these inclusive cultures that encourage connection. And that's not unique right now. That's a, that is a, um, there's a global imperative around creating more inclusive cu- cultures and creating more inclusion in the workplace. But to do that, we have to create that connection. And creating inclusion is not about making everyone be the same. It is about making it safe to be your true self, no matter what that is. So we're going to do a follow up episode on this same topic, talking about creating cultures of inclusion and connection and how we do it, how we move away from these cultures of separation and isolation to um, cultures of connection and inclusion and in a later episode. So I want to wrap up just by saying thank you to everybody for participating and listening to today's episode. As a reminder, my new book, Fiercely Cherished Beings, is available for pre-sale on Amazon, the the ebook version. The live version will be coming out on August 22nd, and uh, that will include the Audible, the the paperback and the hardback books. And if you want to get the ebook now, it's on sale. So go ahead and get it. If you want to check out the first 25 pages, which is like the first couple chapters of the book, uh, you can get those for free on our website. The link will be in the show notes. And as always, we look forward to working with any workplace who has interest in learning more about how to evolve their workplace to become a new type of workplace, a workplace that can continue to evolve in response to the challenges that we are going to continue to face every day as our workplaces continue to grow. Thank you for participating. And as always, keep evolving. 